All right, so good morning, everybody. This is going to be an interesting talk to give. So dermatitis, more than scratching the surface. So for those of you who have been doing dermatology for a while, you are probably sitting there thinking, well, electron dermatitis, that's great. I should have slept in until 8. Well, you are wrong. For those of you who are relatively new to dermatology, you are in very good, very good luck to have somebody actually explain this to you in the correct way. All right, so for those of you who've been doing it for a long time, you're all wrong. All right, so I'm teasing a little bit, but all right, so I do have some audience response questions in, but I didn't get them in in time, so they're not in the fancy fancy audience response system. But going on the honor system, if anybody gets all of them right, I will personally pay for your registration for San Diego, all right? Because it's, I, I think that dermatitis is that underappreciated of a topic, all right? So, honor system on the audience response, okay? Dermatitis, more than scratching the surface, my conflict of interest. So first, what is dermatitis, right? Inflammation of the skin, inflammation of the epi, inflammation of the dermis, spongiotic inflammation of the epidermis, spongiotic inflammation of the epidermis with some eosinophils, or none of the above, right? So when there's a none of the above, it's always none of the above. So the, well, maybe not always, but so the answer, of course, is E, none of the above, right? So dermatitis, what is it? So inflammation of the skin, no, that would count for psoriasis. There's inflammation in tinea, in pitigo, there's inflammation, inflammation in lupus, lichen planus, all kinds of stuff. Precise definition, actually pretty controversial. So there was a study done a couple years ago serving contact dermatitis specialists and there was no um, sort of agreement on what exactly dermatitis means. But it's a little bit like porn, where most dermatologists would say, I know it when I see it, all right? The, probably the, the most appropriate specific definition is a itchy rash that shows spongiosis on biopsy, primarily spongiosis, okay? So none of that, though, was terribly useful, right? Whenever you're in seeing patients, None of that stuff was really very helpful. So the way that I think of this, we, when we started dermatology 200 years ago, we should not have ever coined the term dermatitis. So there should be epidermatitis, and then there should be dermaltitis. And those should be two different entities. Whenever you're looking at a patient in the office, you should think about it that way. Am I looking at epidermatitis, where it's primarily a condition that's in the epidermis, or am I looking at a condition that is primarily in the dermis. And for the most part, that's helpful because if it's primarily in the epidermis, then topicals are gonna work. If it's primarily in the dermis, topicals are probably not gonna work. All right, so it's a really useful way to just think about rashes in general, right? Is it primarily topical, is it primarily in the epidermis, or is it primarily in the dermis? All right, so epidermatitis, which is what I mean whenever I say dermatitis, it's a clinical descriptive term, subacute to chronic, uh, red, uh, slightly scaly, slightly raised, that, that is very superficial. So if it's really raised, it's fairly unlikely to be an epidermatitis, right? So psoriasis, for example, is mo much more of a dermal process. There's a lot of involvement in the epidermis, and that's why psoriasis sometimes responds to topicals. But when you think about a really thick psoriasis plaque, you're thinking much more about something that is very uh, dermal. When you think about granuloma annulare, uh, or you think about um, sort of some of the people with drug rashes, we're much more talking about a dermal process than an epidermal process. But your main goal with dermatitis is an etiologic diagnosis. So just like the patient who comes into a primary care doc, who comes in with a headache, right? If your final, if they come in and oh, I've got, I mean, my head hurts and when I wake up in the morning, it's worse and blah, blah, blah. And at the end of it, and doing a neurological exam and the whole kit and caboodle, the primary care doc says, okay, you have a headache. They're probably not gonna get a lot of respect from that patient, right? Or somebody comes in with abdominal pain and at the end, the doc says, you have a stomach ache. Right? Again, not going to get real far, and it's not very helpful therapeutically. What do you do for you've got a headache, and you don't know, is it a brain tumor? Is it you're hungover? Is it a migraine? You've got a stomach ache. Is it uh, irritable bowel syndrome? Is it inflammatory bowel disease? Is it uh, you're allergic to lac you're lactose intolerant? Whatever. Depending on what it is, 
defines how you're going to treat it. Think of it the same way with dermatitis. Now, I can't get away from dermatitis without talking about the difference between dermatitis and eczema. So eczema is a useful term primarily because patients know what it is. So, well, at least they think they know what it is. So if you tell somebody, you can get away with telling somebody you have eczema, right? Patients think of that as a specific thing and a specific diagnosis. It's even less specific of a term the way that it's used than is dermatitis. However, in its classic use, if you say eczema, what you should mean is atopic dermatitis, All right? So eczema should be in our lingo synonymous with atopic derm. To a patient, it means any kind of an itchy rash, right? To patients, there are two dermatologic conditions that are in existence, psoriasis and eczema. That's it. It's always one of those two. Maybe, you know, ringworm would be number three. But so that's it, psoriasis and eczema. So you can get away with telling patients they have eczema, but it's not a very good term to use whenever you're talking to another uh, provider, all right? So what are the common types, right? Whenever we're talking about an etiologic diagnosis for dermatitis, what are the things that we're talking about as possibilities? Allergic contact, irritant contact, atopic derm, sebderm, xerotic dermatitis, numbular dermatitis, and dermatitis NOS. And we're gonna go through each of these and talk about what makes them a specific diagnosis and then how we think about them treatment-wise as well as pathophysiology-wise. So first, next uh, audience response. Which cells are most important for allergic contact dermatitis? So EOs, lymphocytes, neutrophils, keratinocytes, or Langerhans cells? So to some extent, they all participate. The most important cells here, though, are the lymphocytes. Right, so we all want to see the eosinophils on pathology, but it's been pretty well shown that eosinophils are completely worthless whenever you're trying to distinguish is it allergic contact, irritant contact, uh, atopic dermatitis. When you're trying to distinguish among these, doesn't matter if they're eosinophils or not. They all can have eosinophils. None of them have to have eosinophils. So it's, it's not a very useful way. If, you're, if your derm pass says they're eosinophils, so this is allergic contact derm most likely, that is maybe true from a dermatopathological perspective, but as a clinician, it should not be your guiding factor. The only reason that you would ever biopsy dermatitis is to make sure it is dermatitis that the primary thing you're seeing is spongiosis in the epidermis. It's not superficial and deep. It's not um, you know, superficial perivascular without inflammation in the epidermis. It is true spongiosis in the epidermis. Beyond that, proving that it is dermatitis, a biopsy is pretty much worthless whenever you're dealing with a dermatitis patient in terms of figuring out which dermatitis it is. All right, so the basic pathophysiology of allergic contact derm, right? So it's a type four hypersensitivity. That means it's, it's primarily driven by lymphocytes. And these specific T lymphocytes recognize and react against some substance that has come into contact with the skin previously. And when it came in contact with the skin that previous time, it got uh, processed by antigen-presenting cells. They moved to the lymph nodes. Lymphocytes then learned how to respond to it. And now the next time you get exposed to it, those lymphocytes cause a reaction in the skin as they're trafficking through the normal circulation. All right, these are small chemicals, not proteins. So that's one of the big differences. Whenever I'm doing patch testing and a patient asks me, so did you test me? What about mold and cats and dogs and pollen? Totally different, right? The way that I explain that to patients is that an allergist deals with allergies to natural things, I deal with allergies to man-made things. And patients get that distinction much better than if I say I'm dealing with allergies to chemicals, they're dealing with allergy to proteins. But the two are completely unrelated, have nothing to do with each other at all. But so it's important to sort of understand that concept. So for the first few years I was a dermatologist, when patients would say, oh, I went to an allergist and they tested me, I was like, oh, okay, great, so we know that this is an allergic contact dermatitis. No. Allergists will often do the true test because they have to, but in general, allergy testing, whenever somebody says they went to an allergist, nothing to do with allergic contact dermatitis. All right, so acute allergic contact dermatitis. This is the way that you can think about it. You get exposed to the allergen. You go from uh, zero skin damage to as bad as it gets over the next, you know, say 48 to 72 hours. And then over the next maybe two weeks, 
that slowly resolves, okay? It can be anywhere from a week to probably three weeks, but probably on average two weeks to get to the top. I mean, two weeks to get from the top to that clinical line where the skin damage becomes clinically visible, okay? Now, chronic allergic contact dermatitis, on the other hand, right, so you, get, you can get inflammation to the same degree, but because you have repeated exposures rather than just that one, it stays at that high level for a while, but then once it stops, the rate of improvement is much slower. So instead of it taking maybe two weeks, so think about most classic acute contact dermatitis, poison ivy, you get poison ivy, it takes about two weeks to go away. Let's say on the other hand, you're allergic to your shampoo and you're exposed to that shampoo every day for nine months and you have a rash for nine months. When you stop the shampoo, it's not gonna take two weeks to get better. It's gonna take two months, three months, four months to get better because the rate of improvement is proportional to how long they've been being exposed to it. So if you took poison ivy and rubbed it on somebody every day for eight months, in addition to have a really mad patient, you would have somebody who's gonna take a long time to get better, okay? Much longer than the normal two weeks that we see. So basic clinical facts, it starts eight to about 96 hours after contact. So another useful thing there, somebody says, I'm allergic to um, my uh, deodorant. Whenever I put it on, 15 minutes later, my armpit's itchy. But then, you know, it feels better three hours later. By definition, essentially, that is not allergy to the deodorant. Right? It might be irritant dermatitis, but it's not allergic contact dermatitis. So anytime somebody has that timing where it happens quickly, goes away within a day, or two days or three days, it's not allergic contact dermatitis. Persist for seven to 21 days, persist for three months would be a, rel a relatively typical amount of time if it's a chronic allergic contact dermatitis, but it can be six months. It's not shocking if it takes a really long time to get better. Blister's common when it's acute. Uh, and it's extremely itchy. That's the other thing that can rule out allergic contact dermatitis. Somebody has a rash, looks for all the world like allergic contact dermatitis, but they're like, ah, not that itchy. It's not allergic contact dermatitis. There, there really is no entity of non-pruritic allergic contact dermatitis. All right, so this is the way we do comprehensive patch testing if, if nobody is, for anybody who's not seen this before, right? So the true test, I think most people are familiar with, comes in a little foil pack. You open up the foil pack, you put it on the person's back for extended testing. So we have these little chambers called fin chambers. Somebody has to sit there and put a little dollop of allergen into each of the individual little uh, cells or fin chambers. Those then get taped to the patient's back. They get covered with a bunch more tape. Patient stays like this for about 48 hours, right? They can't get a shower or anything else. Then the tape comes off and it should look like that. So those little circles show you that those little metal discs were stuck on very well. Then we wait another 48 hours to look at these and see if they got a reaction. Now, whenever we're, we're looking at these, what we're looking for is a one plus, two plus, or three plus. So one plus, the, the most important thing whenever I'm teaching residents, uh, extenders, anybody about contact derm and patch testing is you can read patch tests with your eyes closed. So it's almost better to have your eyes closed because what you're really looking for is can I feel anything? So if you can't feel a bump or some infiltration in the skin or something that's raised, then it's not a positive patch test. So he, on this number one, visually you're looking at that thinking, I think I see something there, but you can definitely feel something. Number two, it's obvious it fills the whole circle. And then number three, it's very obvious there's a blister or it's spread way beyond the circle. All right, so the most common cause of contact dermatitis is poison ivy, right? So the allergen is called urushiol. That's the kind of waxy, oily stuff on the surface of the poison ivy. Uh, streaky, couple of, of sort of old uh, wives' tales. Number one, you cannot wash it off. About 15 minutes after, for the first 15 minutes you can, but after about 15 minutes it has bound to the proteins in the skin. Other than literally removing the surface of the skin, you cannot get rid of it cannot wash it off after 15 minutes. And number two, after those 15 minutes, it can't be spread. And that's because once it's bound to that part of the skin, it's bound. The reason it seems like it's spread is if you get a lot of poison ivy on this part of your arm, and then you get a little bit of poison ivy down here, how quickly it shows up depends on how much exposure there was. So this part will show up tomorrow. 
this part will show up three days later because there was not as much of, a, of an exposure at that spot. But to the patient, that seems like, oh, I must have scratched here and then scratched here, and that's why it spread. It's not why it spreads. It's just how much you got exposed to at each spot. High-potency steroids, if it's localized, not that bad. If it's more severe, uh, then you treat them with systemic steroids. I typically start at about 60 milligrams of prednisone, taper them pretty quickly down to 20, and then I'll keep them on that 20 and 10 taper for a total of about three weeks. So if you do it for less than three weeks, it often will come back with a vengeance. And the reason it's three weeks, so what happens with contact derm? Why does it go away? Why does allergic contact dermatitis resolve? Well, it resolves because that poison ivy allergen that has bound to the keratinocytes, penetrated the epidermis, bound to the keratinocytes, the ACD is not gonna get better until those keratinocytes have shed. So they've made it all the way to the top and the allergen has been flaked away. Well, whenever you get acute allergic contact derm and it's red and blistery and scaling like crazy, that accelerates how quickly that gets shed from the surface. When you take the prednisone and it doesn't get red and scaly and blistery, then you don't get that acceleration, so it might stay in the skin longer. But while it's staying in the skin, you're holding back the reaction. And then when the prednisone stops, you suddenly release the dam. And there can be a big flood where people will get a severe flare if you don't keep them on the prednisone long enough to allow the, allergic con the contactant to be shed from the skin. And that's also the reason that we think of uh, chronic allergic contact derm taking so much longer is that allergen, because it's been repeatedly exposed and exposed and exposed to already inflamed skin, has penetrated more deeply. It may have gotten all the way down to the basement membrane zone so that now it is completely permeating the epidermis. The epidermis has to totally renew itself probably more than once before it gets rid of all of the allergen. So that's, whenever you think about why is allergic contact dermatitis take two or three weeks to get better, it's how long it takes the allergen to make it to the surface and then be shed, okay? All right, so uh, other things, there's no effective hyposensitization, so patients awfully ask, well, can I get allergy shots or something like that? Nope, there's nothing that makes you not be allergic to poison ivy. There are some creams that you can put on before, you'll get into, before you get into the poison ivy that protect you from it. If you know you're gonna get into poison ivy, just don't, right? So that seems a lot more effective to me than the creams, okay? Be careful though, persistence on objects or clothing. So I've had people who it was on a pair of gloves and they continued to get allergic contact dermatitis for months afterwards because they didn't realize it was on their gloves that they had been weeding or doing whatever with. All right, so this is your typical appearance for poison ivy. The key thing is we're often talk about the streakiness where there are like lines of it, okay? So what's the most common cause of dermatitis due to rubber? Non-latex hypoallergenic gloves, latex gloves, elastic in clothing, or shoe insoles, or shoe insolves. All right, so the vast majority of cases of allergic contact dermatitis due to rubber are from non-latex hypoallergenic gloves. By far the most common cause of allergic contact dermatitis to rubber, it is uh, probably 98% of cases of allergic contact dermatitis to rubber are from rubber gloves uh, in my practice. Yes, there's rubber in the waistband in your, under, in your underwear, there's rubber in your socks, there's rubber in all kinds of stuff. Rarely, rarely, rarely do we ever see an allergy to those things. And if you don't tell patients that, if you just say you gotta stay away from all rubber, they will go crazy trying to avoid the stuff because rubber is in like everything but rubber gloves are 98% of the problem. So if, when I see a patient who's got allergic contact dermatitis to rubber and a rash on their hands, I tell them it's gloves, nothing else, don't worry about anything else. There might be rubber in your waistband as long as you don't have a rash on your waistline, don't worry about it. Very uh, common sense, okay? So rubber gloves and healthcare workers, this is a, a big issue if you end up dealing with it in a patient. So first thing, not due to latex. Tell them over and over and over and over and over again, you are not allergic to latex, you are not latex allergic. All right, you may even want them to go get a tattoo on their forehead, I'm not latex allergic. Because once somebody who's a healthcare worker says I am latex allergic, you have pretty much ruined their life. So if they're a nurse, they can't be a nurse. They, theoretically, they can still be a nurse, but you've ruined their life. You've made it incredibly hard for them to do their job for the rest of their life as soon as they think they're latex allergic, as soon as they go in and tell employee health, oh, I, they told me I'm allergic to rubber, I'm latex allergic they now 
cannot be in a facility that is not latex free because latex allergy can be fatal, right? And so no workplace wants to take the risk of having a latex allergic person in the facility if the facility is not latex free. So number one, they are not latex allergic. Okay, number two, uh, why are these called accelerators? So you hear rubber accelerator allergy. They're called accelerators because they accelerate the transition of rubber from a liquid to a solid. So it's, it's whatever you think about rubber, they have something that looks like rubber gloves. They have something that looks like a hand and it's on a little assembly line and it dips into liquid and then the liquid solidifies on it and then they peel it off. So the accelerator accelerates this so that they don't have to dip it and then wait two days. They can dip it and wait you know, 10 minutes for it to solidify into a glove and then be peeled off. So for these people, um, no, it, well, where that goes to, when people hear non or hypoallergenic gloves, that means they're non-latex gloves. It has nothing to do with these chemicals. So these chemicals are 100% as common in hypoallergenic non-latex gloves as they are in allergenic latex gloves, right? You see a lot of gloves labeled hypoallergenic. You never see a glove labeled hyperallergenic. But it might be helpful for patients if they were. Right, so safe gloves for these people. Vinyl uh, is one, very poor dexterity, uh, very poor protection. Nitrile that is free of uh, accelerators, much better. This is Microtouch Nitra Free. This is the one brand that's out there on the market that's, that is accelerator free. It's a very good glove, not particularly expensive. And then Dermaprene Ultra is your one surgical glove that is accelerator free. Okay, so for your, even for your scrub tech, right, that's the most common person that I end up seeing allergic contact dermatitis, so the hands in due to gloves are OR nurses who are scrub techs, they can use the Dermaprene Ultra Glove. That's the one sterile glove on the market they can use. And then the Microtouch Nitra Free is the one nitrile glove they can use. There are plenty of vinyl gloves, but you're generally not allowed to use vinyl gloves in an OR environment. All right, so a couple of examples of allergic contact dermatitis of the hands, right? The one on the right had it just on the back of his hands. This was a plastic surgery resident. Uh, the one on the left was a guy who worked in a steel mill, um, had been on disability, uh, was not getting any better. We eventually figured out it was the rubber gloves he wore when he washed the dishes at home. Had nothing to do with his job. We sent him back to work and he was fine. But the thing to look at here is the one on the left has both dorsal hand and palmar hand. Okay, and that should be one of your tip-offs when you're looking at a hand dermatitis to be more suspicious of allergic contact compared to irritant contact. So normally with a hand dermatitis, and this is just a really rough and cut rule, back of the hand, irritant dermatitis. Back and palm, allergic contact dermatitis, just the palm, chronic vesicular or dishydrotic. So that's a, a very sort of General rule of thumb, I can give you lots of examples of that being incorrect, but 90% of the time that's going to get it right. So nickel typically requires prolonged contact, earrings, belt buckles, things to keep in mind that are clinically useful. You can order the dimethylglyoxine test online, just search nickel test, costs about 20 bucks, and then the patient can rub that on an object, see if it's releasing nickel or not. And there are a lot of internet sources for nickel-free items. The biggest thing with this, when somebody comes in, if you're making the diagnosis clinically, if you're just looking, if they say, oh, I got a rash from earrings, you're saying, oh, you're nickel allergic, don't assume that they're just nickel allergic. A lot of these people are also cobalt and chromate allergic, and so you still want to do patch testing to see if nickel-free is going to be acceptable or if they need nickel-free, cobalt-free, chromate-free. So if you just tell them you're allergic to nickel, get nickel-free stuff, they might keep breaking out because of the chromate and the cobalt that can also be in the metal items. Right, so this is a nice example of a belt buckle uh, causing allergic contact derm. And you look at that and you're like, how in the world did these people not figure this out? Right? The patient's like, huh, man, this rash, right? It might, makes my, this belt buckle, man, it makes me itch like crazy. Oh, I'll put it back on. All right? So this person with, the, two, with the, the things on her bra, again, how do you not figure that out? Right? Just, you got to move it out of the way to scratch it. And then it's, put it right back. Okay, so topical medications, neomycin and bacitracin, extremely common. Often it'll look like a procedure site that has uh, gotten infected, but it itches rather than it hurts. This is a biopsy site uh, that we use, somebody used polysporin on, uh, and they got allergic contact dermatitis at the site. This was another biopsy, this was actually an AK that was frozen, uh, and then they were using neosporin on it afterwards. This is what it looked like. These are cases of much worse allergic contact dermatitis to neosporin. And you've got to remember if you're a patient and you have a rash, 
right? What are the things you're going to put on it? You're going to use Neosporin first, then you're going to use hydrocortisone, then you're going to use athlete's foot cream, right? And so if any of those, you know, don't do the trick, you're going to end up in a dermatologist, but, you know, you're less... And the sophisticated patients will never go past the Neosporin. And that's what happened with these two people. These were both inpatients uh, who were hospitalized for their uh, recalcitrant cellulitis, who this was all purely allergic contact dermatitis from Neosporin. So from personal care products, it can be any personal care product. doesn't matter if it says hypoallergenic or not. Uh, and the findings depend completely on where it's coming into contact with the skin. So what is the most common cause of allergic contact dermatitis of the eyelids? Right, so nail polish, acrylic nails, makeup, eyelash curlers, and shampoo. And I will, I guess I should specify, what's the most common cause of allergic contact dermatitis of the eyelids in my practice? So my practice might be different from yours, but in my practice, it is 90% shampoo. Right, that is by far the big one. Incredibly rare for me to see nail polish causing eyelid dermatitis. Acrylic nails, a little bit more common. Never makeup. And I assume that's because they figure it out before they ever get to me. So by the time they get to me, they've had a rash for eight months. They've seen three dermatologists. The first thing somebody does when they get an eyelid dermatitis is stop their makeup, switch their makeup. So if they got better when they did that, they never end up seeing me. Eyelash curlers from the nickel in the eyelash curler. Right, so this is your... Typical shampoo allergy tends to be this rinse-off pattern coming down the sides of the face, a couple more cases. This is allergy to toothpaste. So toothpaste allergy, most commonly bottom lip, worse than the top lip, and the side that you brush on will, be, will have a little patch over on the cheek from the toothpaste being on the toothbrush. Right, this was him, uh, I think about three or four weeks later, doing a lot better. This is allergy to a lip product, so a Burt's Bees kind of thing, chapstick, Balmex, all of those. This will usually be uh, equal on the upper and lower lip as opposed to toothpaste, which is typically worse on the lower lip. All right, so this is what, you know, I, I love showing this case. It's one of my favorites. If anybody's seen me give a contact derm lecture before, uh, I always like to talk about this one. This was a woman who was allergic to chlorozylenol, which is a weird allergen that's an antibacterial agent in soaps in public bathrooms. She worked watering plants in office buildings at night. We figured out she was allergic to the stuff in the soaps. I'm, I'm talking to her, okay, it's the stuff in the soaps. It's got to be. So when you wash your hands, you must be washing, and then maybe from getting the plants on you, you're going like this and getting it up here. She said, no, I don't do that. I never... She was a smoker. I never do that. Never. It's always like this. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. You couldn't possibly be right. Uh, I don't know. You doctors don't know what the hell you're talking about. I never believe you. <laughs> and this was what the problem was. She would wash her hands, do have some residual allergen, and then go like that and spread it to her antecubital fossa. All right. So uh, this is an example. If it's worse on one hand than the other, that can happen whenever it's from putting something on. So this person was allergic to their Lubriderm moisturizer. They got the rash on their right hand and on wherever they got the Lubriderm. So they were using their, their right hand to put it on, and so they got the rash on their right palm. This is somebody, it was their conditioner. So whenever they put their conditioner in, they put it on their palm, go like this, put it in their hair. They, would get it, they got it on both palms because they were using both hands to put it on. Right, so now irritant contact dermatitis, all right, so that was a fast overview of allergic contact. Irritant contact, not immunologically based, right, so remember there can be, there's inflammation and then there's uh, Im immunologic activation, right? Immunologic activation can cause inflammation, and, and this is the way that I think about this. So inflammation that's non-immunologic, an example might be a burn, right, so if I put something really hot on your skin, tomorrow it's gonna to be red and painful, and if we did a biopsy, there'd be inflammation. It's not that I activated your immune system, your, in, your adaptive immune system, we got lymphocytes fired up, it's that I damaged your keratinocytes, and now there is sort of a repair mechanism coming, but I didn't activate your specific immune system. So it's repeated exposure to substances that are minimally, minimally toxic, they eventually get to the viable keratinocytes, and then the keratinocytes start to release inflammatory cytokines that draw in lymphocytes, eosinophils, neutrophils. Gives you the same picture as allergic contact dermatitis. You just get there a different way. And so the way that you think about acute irritant dermatitis is just like acute allergic contact dermatitis. It tends to get better faster, though, because we don't need to wait for anything to be cleared from the skin. We just need to wait for those keratinocytes to heal and stop releasing cytokines. So it tends to get better faster than allergic contact, 
Now, cumulative irritant dermatitis is much more common than acute. So this you might call a chemical burn, right? So somebody goes in to get their hair dyed, the, there's a new person doing the dyeing that week, they leave the ammonia on too long, they get a burn on their scalp, right? This is the much more common pattern where that line is where you're gonna start to see a rash, red scaly flaky, right? So a little bit of skin damage, heal some, a little bit of skin damage, heals, a little bit of skin damage, heals, a little bit of skin damage, ooh, you're getting close, right, heals, whoop! Now you start to get a rash. Now the skin damage has been going on for days, weeks, months prior to getting a rash. And what I don't show on here is that what can, so now it just keeps getting whoop, worse and worse and worse. But what can happen is you get a little bit below that dermatitis threshold, oh man, I'm washing my hands too much. You wash your hands a little bit less, rash goes away, Patient's like, oh, I'm better, okay, and go back to normal, rash comes right back. Oh, must not be washing my hands like I thought it was. Because whenever I, you know, I started washing them again, it came right back. Um, it's, but when I kept washing them just not as frequently, it got better. It didn't get all the way better. So you can be below the dermatitis threshold, but still have a lot of skin damage. And so that's why you, whenever somebody's getting better from a dermatitis, they will continue to be very sensitive for a long time because they will be in the range of skin damage but no dermatitis that you can visibly see. So their skin's not normal, it just looks normal, okay? So who's most likely to have to quit their job due to irritant hand dermatitis, right? So these are all high irritancy, high skin damage things, but beautician's by far the, the most common. Uh, the biggest challenge for a beautician is they can't wear gloves. Right, so they can wear gloves to shampoo, but they can't wear gloves to cut. And the cutting part is where they're getting exposed to a lot of moisture and a lot of irritants. So irritant hand dermatitis, repetitive exposure to soap and water, healthcare beauticians, food, food service workers, beauticians though by far uh, the worst affected. Uh, healthcare workers really, 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 really common, but usually not that severe. Beauticians, it's usually really bad once they get it. So classically starts between the fingers, usually worse on the backs of the hands, might be, it might be itchy, and there's no like 100%. If you see this, it's allergic. If you see that, it's irritant. But as I was saying earlier, backs of the hands without the palms, mainly irritant. Palms without the back, mainly idiopathic, chronic vesicular, dishydrotic. If it's both palm and front, then you're thinking most likely allergic contact dermatitis. Okay, so. Example of mild irritant contact derm, a little bit of pinkness and scaling between the fingers. Here it's getting worse. You've got it on the volar wrists, but the palm skin itself is spared, except for being a little bit dry. This was that same patient a couple weeks later. Um, the wrists, of course, are better because we've started to avoid the irritants. This is a case of worse allergic contact dermatitis, and you get the idea here. The back of the hand is really bad. The palm is basically fine. Another bad case, this was in a nurse. Again, back of the hand really bad, palm basically fine, right? So that's a good marker that this is most likely irritant contact derm. Now this though is an example, you can get involvement of the palm. Uh, this guy I think worked with, um, he was a mechanic of some sort, and so he was washing his hands with uh, solvents, uh, gasoline, that kind of stuff, and that was causing really severe irritant dermatitis. So prevention for irritant hand dermatitis. Hardest thing in the world to get across to patients, especially healthcare people, is that alcohol-based hand sanitizers are literally a billion times, maybe not literally a billion, are literally much, much better than soap and water. So soap and water does not hurt, but it causes damage. Alcohol-based hand sanitizers do not cause any damage, but they hurt, all right? So the way that you've got to think about this Soap and water damaging your skin, not damaging your nerve endings. Alcohol damaging your nerve endings, not damaging them, irritating them, not damaging your skin. All right, so since we're trying to get your skin better, we're willing to tolerate some irritation of the nerve endings in order to allow the skin to heal. So hand sanitizer is much, much, much better for your skin than is washing. Hand sanitizer is also much better in terms of infection control. So if you look at washing versus hand sanitizers, hand sanitizer dramatically more effective in terms of reducing the bacterial burden on your skin. So hand sanitizers are what you should be using most of the time, and it's what your patients should be using most of the time. You'll have much less problem with hand dermatitis. It's gonna be a little bit hard to get there because if your hands are already broken out, it really, really, really burns when you use the sanitizer, but 
it's still the best way to get there. If you can put somebody on some prednisone for a couple weeks, get their hands better so that the hand sanitizers don't hurt, don't hurt as much and they can start using them, then you can hopefully get them off of the prednisone once you've got them away from the soap and water. Moisturizer immediately after washing their hands. Lotions, not particularly helpful. Cream's much better. My two favorites right now, Userin Plus Intensive Repair Hand Cream and the CeraVe Renewing Lotion, or Re CeraVe, yeah, I think it's Renewing Lotion. It used to be SA. Uh, barrier creams with dimethicone might help, uh, and that's the CeraVe Therapeutic Hand Cream. It has dimethicone and a couple of other things that are good barriers against soap and water. And I try to avoid topical steroids for more than two consecutive days. So the reason that we do that, if you use topical steroid for three days, you have now really impaired the skin barrier. So we all know topical steroids cause atrophy, what we, if we use them for a couple of weeks or months, but two days, they affect your skin's ability to produce lipids. And so now your skin cannot produce the lipids it needs to protect itself when you're using a topical steroid. So we try to not do steroids two days on, two days off, two days on, two days off, to try and prevent uh, that side effect of getting a, a loss of lipid production. So mild soap, Cetaphil Dove, CeraVe, moisturizer in general. So the therapeutic ones are a little more expensive, but tend to work better. But CeraVe, generic Cetaphil cream, petroleum jelly, all are reasonable choices. It's more important how frequent they put it on than what exactly they put on. All right, so atopic dermatitis. Basic pathophysiology. Abnormal skin barrier allows stuff to get in and water to get out. If you just have an abnormal barrier, that's it. Your immune system's totally normal. You just have dry skin and xerosis, ichthyosis maybe. If you have an abnormal barrier and an immune system that is very sort of neurotic and hypersensitive, that stuff that gets in will now, will now cause allergy, inflammation, irritation, dermatitis. Now, if you've got a great skin barrier but a neurotic immune system, you won't have eczema, but you'll get asthma and rhinitis. Okay, so eczema is the combination of bad skin barrier plus a hypersensitive immune system. Dry skin, just a bad barrier, allergic rhinitis, allergic asthma, hypersensitive immune system, normal barrier, right? So that's how we think about that spectrum of what's the difference between dry skin and eczema? Why do some people get eczema and asthma and allergies? Why do some people just get allergies and asthma but not eczema? It depends on those two, two factors, skin barrier and immune system, and there are three possible combinations. Both are good, both are bad, four I guess. Both are good, in which case you're fine. Both are bad, or one's bad and the other's good. All right, so keratinocytes release inflammatory mediators, and then the immune system becomes sensitized, uh, and you start to get all the IgE, right? So atopic dermatitis, how does this look pathophysiologically? The key thing here, we have a skin barrier that doesn't work very well, so it's that the dermatitis threshold drops, so that now it doesn't take very much to get above the dermatitis threshold, and then it recovers very slowly. And so it, you can think of it as being somebody with bad atopic dermatitis, living in the modern world, you get enough exposure to chemicals and to allergens that you absolutely cannot protect the skin enough to prevent inflammation. Right, so if you try to live the most hypoallergenic life you can, living in the US, right, what you would have to do is stay naked all the time, never get a bath or a shower, and live in a box that had uh, plastic walls that weren't painted, no carpet, no bed, no pillows, um, not a very nice existence, right? Think about all the stuff we're exposed to every day the dyes in our clothing, the formaldehyde being released from our clothing, the detergent that's in our clothing residual from laundry, the ingredients in our soap, our shampoo, our conditioner, our deodorant, um, the dust mites in our bed, the dust mites in our pillow. So theoretically it's conceivable, I, I read once that a pillow that was two years old is 20% dust mite poop by weight. So when you go home tonight, we should all think about that Right, that nice 20% poop pillow, all right? Nobody's allowed to call me at 3 a.m. though. All right, so what percentage of atopic dermatitis starts in childhood? In the Matt Zyrus world, it's 99.99999%. When I see somebody who's an adult who says, no, I never had eczema when I was a kid, either they don't have eczema now or just nobody told them they had it when they were a kid. 
right? So adult onset eczema, you will see in lectures and textbooks and articles that, you know, 10% of eczema starts in adulthood. I, have, I don't buy that, have never bought it. Um, this is a disease that if you have it, it should start when you're in childhood. So onset during childhood, your extensors and your face while crawling, right? So that's where the main exposure is for babies. And then as you get older, uh, your flexor surface is very itchy, improves during adolescence, often flares during college. You want to think of this as the anti-acne disease, right? So you get eczema when you're a little kid. Once you start to get acne, your eczema gets better because your skin is producing enormous amounts of oil, right? And then once your acne starts to get better, around anywhere from 18 into your mid-20s, your eczema is likely to come back. So think of eczema and acne as being sort of the opposites of each other in terms of the age and demographics, okay? And you don't see a lot, you do see some atopics who get bad uh, acne, but most people with really bad acne do not have bad eczema and vice versa. And that's because acne is largely a disease of excess oil production, uh, sebum, atopic dermatitis is not really sebum related, but if you've got a lot of oil, it's gonna protect you somewhat from from atopic dermatitis. So it's a, it's a way to think about it. It may or may not be correct. I don't wanna tell you that it's, you know, this is the way that it works, but it's a way that if you, rem if you think about it that way, eczema or acne and atopic dermatitis sort of inverse of each other, okay? So this is what your typical baby with eczema looks like, right? Got it on their cheeks from trying to eat food and getting it all over. That's also why atopics get peanut allergy because their skin is broken and then whenever they get peanuts or peanut butter and it touches their skin, they then become peanut allergic because they're exposed via the skin rather than being exposed via your uh, GI tract, right? So we're supposed to be exposed to every allergen known to man. We're supposed to be exposed by eating it. Dust mite, pollen, um, mold spores, foods. We're supposed to eat all of that stuff. Now, hopefully you're sitting there thinking, what the world is he talking about? We're supposed to eat dust mites. I'm going to go outside and lick pollen off of the grass. What, what in the world are we? No, but think about it. whenever you breathe stuff in, it gets stuck in the saliva or the mucus in your nasal passages or in your mouth. What happens once it does that? Eventually you swallow it. So you are eating dust mites and pollen and mold and spores and pet dander and all of that stuff from the minute you are born because you're breathing it in and then you're swallowing it. Eczema, instead of getting exposed to it and it training your immune system in your intestines, it's getting exposed to your immune system and training your immune system in your skin. So that's why atopics get allergies to all this stuff in the air and normal people do not because normal people get exposed via eating it, atopics get exposed via getting it on their skin. In normal people, it gets on their skin, but it never gets through their skin and into their skin. In atopics, it gets into their skin. Right, so I would love for this to be a picture of the same kid that just kind of grew up. It's, it looks very much like a little bit of a slightly chubby little boy, right? Another slightly big-bellied little boy. Uh, but this is what eczema looks like as he gets a little bit older, right? So he's got it in his antecubital fossa. He's got it on the flexors of his knee, of his ankles. This is a sort of a teenager. The eczema's gotten a lot better, but, and it doesn't project terribly well, but there's just kind of this mild, a little bit of redness all over. Right, so atopic derm, from mild to moderate. So mild, so, and, and if anybody gives you, wants to give you like a whole lecture or talks to you a lot about managing mild to moderate atopic dermatitis, don't do it, right? So talking about managing mild to moderate atopic dermatitis is sort of like talking about managing a benign mole. Just not that hard, right? So mild to moderate atopic derm, almost by definition, mild soaps, um, moisturizer, occasional topical steroid, and they're fine. Right? It's easy peasy, you can do pretty much whatever you want and these people are gonna be okay. Biggest thing you can do for them is tell them not to worry about the topical steroids. So 70% of atopics have steroid phobia, right? And what's phobia mean, right? So steroids can't have side effects. It's not unreasonable to have a concern about steroid side effects. A phobia is fear that is out of proportion to actual risk. So if I brought in a bunch of black widow spiders and dropped them on you and that freaked you out, that is not a spider phobia, right? That is like normally how you should react, okay? If on the other hand, a daddy long legs walks across the stage up here and you go screaming running out of the room, that's a spider phobia, arachnophobia, right? Steroids 
we have created people who are the equivalent. They see the daddy long legs, they run out of the room. It is unbelievably hard to hurt yourself with topical steroids. The only thing that can possibly happen to anyone as a result of topical steroids is getting stretch marks, okay? Can you get HPA axis suppression and Cushing's disease? If you have the best insurance in the world, maybe. Most cases of that are like, they're putting on 30 grams of clobetazole every day for four months, right? If you can get an insurance company to pay for 30 grams of clobetazole a day, I'm impressed and you're gonna save the money when they go into the hospital because they're not gonna spend as much on the clobetazole anymore, right? The only thing that you can do is cause people to have stretch marks. That's gonna be armpits, groin, breasts, those kinds of areas. Even that's really hard to do. Even putting it on your eyelids, it is unbelievably hard to cause glaucoma or cataracts. I cannot tell you how much patients come in, like life-altering, been on prednisone over and over and over again. Somebody wanted to put them on cyclosporin or imuran for their eyelid dermatitis, and they're like, well, I'm, okay, put your hydrocortisone on, on your eyelid. Oh my God, I, was, I can't get it near my eye, right? You're not gonna, right, the, the, you're not gonna hurt yourself, right? The, the best study on this is if you put a class four steroid, so roughly hydrocortisone butyrate, on your eyelids half the time. So three days a week, two weeks a month, every other day, whatever you want to do, absolutely no increase in intraocular pressure whenever they studied large groups of people. Now, if somebody has never been to an eye doctor in their whole life, right, and they're like, oh, my eyes hurt all the time, right, then you might think, oh, maybe I don't want to have them use topical steroid on their eyeballs because they may already have glaucoma, and then you put the steroid on, and they go to the eye doctor for the first time and say, oh, that, for God's sakes, that dermatologist, they caused your glaucoma, right? No, they, they've had glaucoma and you put the steroid on. Just don't worry about it too much. It, we cause a lot of steroid phobia. It's really hard to hurt anybody with a topical steroid. So what doesn't work for atopic dermatitis? Food avoidance, those over the age of five, even if they have a positive RAS test, right? Food avoidance does not work. Chelation, bowel detoxification, all of the weird, goofy stuff, doesn't work. It might work in a given person, but it also might work for them to um, start to use uh, negatively polarly charged water, or it might work for them to start bathing in their own pee. I mean, I don't know, come up with whatever you want. You never know what's gonna work, but in most patients, the, these are not gonna help. Maybe vitamin D and vitamin E, maybe probiotics, the jury is still out on those two. Um, and food might play a role in eczema. I'm not saying food doesn't play a role. I'm saying that food allergy doesn't play a role. So I, I really believe there are patients out there who there are certain foods that are triggering their eczema, but it has nothing to do with their allergy testing. It has nothing to do with any of the other goofy testing that you can send there. You know, there, there are these labs now, you draw their blood, you send it off, it's $900. It comes back and tells them all the goofy stuff they can't eat. That doesn't work either. It's trial and error is the only time I've really seen diet work for atopic derm. Moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, basically send these people to somebody with a special interest in atopic dermatitis. If you don't have somebody near you who has a special interest in atopic dermatitis, you're gonna have to develop it if you wanna treat these people. So, mild, so moderate to severe atopic dermatitis is really hard to treat. It's harder to treat than, than bad psoriasis. It's probably harder to treat than pemphigus, pemphigoid just about everything, because it is so recalcitrant, so chronic, and so hard to manage in the long term. I know I can give them prednisone and get them better in the short term, but in the long term, it's a really challenging disease. These are some of the things that, that I use. Chlorinated water soaks, the reason I put it that way, right, that's a bleach bath. Never, ever, ever, ever tell anybody to get a bleach bath. Worst thing in the world you can do is tell somebody to get a bleach bath, right? Now, we know bleach baths work, so why am I telling you, don't ever tell anybody to get a bleach bath? Because the minute you say bleach bath, they are saying, this person is out of their mind. I am not gonna do anything they say because the minute I get in a bathtub with bleach, my skin is gonna burn so bad that I might as well just you know, set the house on fire. Okay, tell people swimming pools or chlorinated water. Okay, that gets them some buy-in because they know they can go in swimming pools and it doesn't burn. Chlorinated water sounds fancy. If you say bleach bath, their brain immediately shuts off. Okay, it's a much easier deal if you talk about it in those terms. So then seborrheic dermatitis, so this is an inflammatory reaction to malassezia yeast, red scaly, sharply bordered patches, right? So mild sebderm, pretty easy to deal with, right? So eyebrows, nasolabial folds, 
you get subdermal that's a little bit worse, right? You start to see it where, where it's bad enough that you're questioning, is this seborrheic dermatitis? If you're looking at somebody on the face, pretty bad rash, not that itchy, Sebderm is, is your most likely diagnosis. Look in the retroauricular areas. If there's anything, any pinkness there, it's pretty much sebderm, slam dunk. Look at their scalp for any dandruff. Anything there, slam dunk, it's seborrheic dermatitis. If they're normal in those two areas, it still might be sebderm, but if they have anything in those two areas, slam dunk, right? So the thing that, that I want you to notice when you look at this picture is how you could take a pen and kind of draw the borders where the seborrheic dermatitis ends and that kind of sharply uh, bordered patches is very much what you want to see for subderm. So which of the following caused seborrheic dermatitis to flare? So all of them except sun exposure. Final exams, air travel, being hospitalized, neurologic disease. Final exams, air travel, hospitalization, those all cause stress. Stress changes your skin lipid composition. Your malassezia populations go through the roof. You then get an inflammatory reaction to malassezia. Neurologic disease, nobody's sure why, but Parkinson's, strokes, other things that are neurologic can cause uh, seborrheic dermatitis to flare. Sun exposures probably benefits seborrheic dermatitis. Right, so how do, you, how do you treat these people? Wash the affected areas with head and shoulders, right? Patients like that, right? It's kind of an old wives' tale, kind of. All right, I'm gonna treat you without a prescription. You can just go down to the drugstore, right? So wash their face with head and shoulder shampoo, Low-potency topical steroid lotion or solution. I don't like creams or ointments for this because it's already a little bit oily on the face. Topical antifungal, use whatever you want. It should be an azole. Uh, any of them are, are basically okay. Um, the more, I'd say, modern ones, right? So things other than myconazole, clotrimazole, ketoconazole do work better, um, but they're also more expensive. So it, it's always that trade-off between cost and uh, sort of efficacy. And then for patients who have a really severe oral ketoconazole or ritroconazole, I have not changed this yet. We're basically not allowed to use ketoconazole anymore. The, the pretty much FDA has said nobody should ever prescribe ketoconazole for any reason. If your doctor or anybody else prescribes this for you, uh, you are likely to die and it will be their fault. Right? So you really, we have other options. You can use fluconazole, you can use itraconazole. So pearls for this, flares in hospitalized patients. Uh, and especially if you get new onset in an older adult, you want to think about HIV and you want to think about early onset of a neurological disease. Right, so what's dry skin missing? Again, I forgot to take the green out. Right, so ceramides, cholesterol, free fatty acids, natural moisturizing factor, no. Right, so that's what's missing in a lot of atopic dermatitis patients. Dry skin patients, it's missing water. Right, that's the definition of dry skin. Right, so inadequate lipids, allow water to escape. So the, it becomes dry only once the water leaves. Cordium becomes dry and brittle. Fissuring ensues, starts to look like this. Can look, start to get inflammatory like that. And this is called eczema craquelet, right? And so acute, add water and artificial lipid, soak for 10 to 15 minutes, put on petroleum jelly, wear something over that to keep the petroleum jelly on the skin. Chronic, you need to increase their natural lipid production. Ceramide-containing moisturizer twice daily, best thing we've got right now. Maybe we'll have something better in the future, but at the moment, ceramide-containing moisturizers, most cost-effective right now is CeraVe. Numular dermatitis, just small coin-shaped lesions. Nobody knows why people get them, but that's the idea of why they're called numular or coin-shaped. And short-term systemic steroids, high-potency topical steroids long-term, and moisturize aggressively. And that's it. Thank you guys very much.